This is the 15th installment of the Messiah series. We covered a lot. There's still a lot to talk about, but I found that many of the upcoming subjects are somewhat tangential to the central subject of Messiah. After all, we're studying the 13 principles of faith, and we want to focus on the actual principle of faith. Many of these ideas are more marginal subjects of Messiah. I want to speak about them, but not to spend too much time. So my current plan is to structure it this way. Today, I want to focus on the practical elements of Messiah. What do we need to do? How must we prepare for Messiah? And then have one or two installments to quickly touch upon a variety of subjects that relate to Messiah, sort of a a Messiah grab bag, a Messiah miscellaneous. And then potentially when we finish the entire study of the 13 principles of faith with the help of the Almighty, perhaps we will revisit some of those subjects and give them greater, uh, more elaborate treatment. That's my current plan. It's subject to change. Uh, Maybe we'll do one more subject in depth, but that's my current plan. Now, we have spoken extensively about what Messiah is. What is this Messianic era? What is this figure called Messiah? And what do we know about who Messiah is, what they must do, what the world looks like, how the world changes? What do we know about the era of Messiah? That we've covered. Today, I want to focus on the practical elements of Messiah. What do we need to do? How must we prepare? How do we get ready for Messiah? And this is very much connected to the principle of faith of Messiah. It's not entirely theoretical. It's not just an abstract concept. It's not just a belief about a future event, a future transformation. We must await Messiah. We must anticipate Messiah. When the Rambam delineates this principle, he says the part of it, is to believe Messiah and to await Messiah and to yearn for Messiah. So there is something that we need to do on a very practical level to be congruent, to be compliant with this principle. There's an obligation to yearn, to await, to anticipate, and to hope for Messiah. That's part of this principle. Now, Rabbam cites a verse to this effect, the verse in Chabakuk, chapter 2, if the Messiah tarries, you await Messiah. And he tells us that this is part of the principle. We have to await Messiah, even if it takes some time. And we know that part of our belief system is to believe in Messiah. And someone who does not believe in Messiah, the Rambam tells us, they don't merit Olam Haba, they have no place in the afterlife. And when he talks about Messiah in the Laws of Kings chapter 11, he tells us not only we have to believe in Messiah, we ask, we have to also await Messiah, anticipate Messiah, yearn for Messiah. And someone who does not do that, they are repudiating not just the prophets, but the Torah itself. So our responsibility is not just to believe in Messiah, but also to await and yearn and anticipate it. The Talmud tells us that after a person passes, 
they're going to be ushered into a heavenly tribunal. And they're going to face six layers of interrogation. Six different questions that they're going to have to answer. And question number four is, Tsipisa li Yoshua, did you await salvation? Did you anticipate, did you yearn for Messiah? This is one of the critical questions that we're going to be asked when we face heavenly judgment. Now, the centrality of Messiah cannot be overlooked. We look at our prayer, the Amidah prayer that we do three times a day. There are many requests and many references to Messiah. The very first blessing, which is how we begin every Amidah prayer, we talk about the fact that God brings salvation, brings a Redeemer to the descendants of the forefathers. And we say in the prayers, we ask God for redemption. And we ask God to blow a shofar of salvation and lift a banner to gather in our exiles and to restore our judges and to build Jerusalem and to take the seed of David and make it sprout and to restore the service to the temple. So you look at the prayer and it's all about Messiah. Not all, but a large part of it is about Messiah. And we have to make sure if we're going to pray, we need to make sure that we are not being mendacious in our prayer. We have to believe what we're saying. You can't say words and not believe it. If we're talking about how we hope and we await and we yearn for all these different elements of redemption of Messiah, we better actually want it. Now, when we finish the Amidah prayer, there's a small post-prayer supplication. May it be the will before you, that the temple should be rebuilt speedily in our days. And there we will serve you in awe, like the days of yore. And then when we're done praying completely, we say the Aleinu prayer. And the second paragraph of that is all about Messiah. And we say, we hope, we yearn to see speedily in the glory of your might and to remove all the idols from the land and to destroy all the foreign gods and to fix the world with the kingdom of God. And all flesh will call out in your name and all evil and all wickedness will be banished. And everyone who lives and inhabits this world will know you, will call out to you, will bow before you. Everyone will give honor to God. Everyone will accept upon themselves the yoke of your dominion, of your kingdom, and you will rule over them forever. And we quote the verse, God will rule forever. On that day, God will be one and his name will be one. So this idea of of Messiah not just being something which is theoretical, a belief that we have, but it's dominating our religious life. And we're praying and and asking and yearning for all the different elements of Messiah, this is highlighting the fact that we're supposed to desire it. We're supposed to want it and anticipate it. And there's another point over here. When we desire Messiah, when we 
anticipate Messiah, when we await Messiah, that in itself helps expedite Messiah. The desire for Messiah itself contributes towards Messiah coming faster. As an example, in the Shabbos morning Kedusha, we say, we ask God, from your place may you appear and rule over us because we are awaiting you. That statement is saying that we're asking that you reveal yourself that you change the dynamics of this world, because that's what we want. Our claim to Messiah is that we want it. And then we continue. We we say, when will it finally happen? When will you rule in Zion? May your name be made great and sanctified in Jerusalem, etc. And may we witness it. So there are other sources to this effect, but we see that the anticipation for Messiah it actually contributes towards the expediting of Messiah. So we have an idea, and it's not just a distant, theoretical, abstract concept. It's very much connected to us on a practical level. And the commentaries tell us something even deeper. Messiah cannot be divorced and decoupled from faith. If you believe, if you have faith, part of that is the yearning for that faith to flower, to blossom in the world. The Ten Commandments begin, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt. The identity of God is one who interacts with the world, who tries to bring the world towards perfection. So the idea of our belief in faith is very much connected to the idea of perfecting the world. If you think about it, if someone really believes in God, and that's a real belief, it should rankle them and bother them to no end that the world is off course, that the world's been misappropriated, that instead of the world being used as a, as, as a way, as a means, as a platform to exalt God, it's been used for all sorts of nonsense. And the foreign god and all sorts of idols, they have a foothold. In the words of Exodus, the throne of God is incomplete. And anyone who's on team God, who believes in God, should want that the throne of God be complete. So long as Amalek rules, so long as the Yetzirah exists, the foreign god rules, the world is not in the place where it ought to be. And thus, a basic faith should demand, should result in a yearning for Messiah, for God being one and his name being one. And again, of course, when we say yearning for Messiah, we have to be very careful, as we mentioned in the past, that does not mean that we're pushing for Messiah. We spoke in the past that Messiah is compared to childbirth. You don't want it to happen too early. You don't want the result to be underbaked. We don't exclaim, we want Messiah, we want Mashiach now, and we don't want to wait. No, we're required to wait. We're told to wait. When Jacob had his showdown with Esau, 
The verse tells us in chapter 33 of Genesis that Esav wanted to reunite with Jacob. It says, come, let's, let's live together. And Jacob told his brother, I'll get to you. Let me go slowly. Let me go at my own pace. Eventually, we'll have our showdown. They never met for that fateful showdown. And as they just tell us that that's going to happen in Messiah. It's time in the era of Messiah. Jacob is saying, we'll, we'll do it slowly. We don't reach for Messiah. We don't try to grab it. We don't try to snatch it. We wait and we yearn. And this is not easy. And it's not easy for anyone. If someone's righteous, anticipating Messiah, yearning for Messiah, is an act of sacrifice. We've learned in the past that Messiah, part of this transformation, is the elimination of the Sahara. And therefore, Messiah's times is described as days bereft of desire. If someone is successful in an environment where they face a lot of resistance, of course, they get great reward for that. And when you remove the resistance, well, the reward goes away as well. So if someone's righteous, they're better off personally without Messiah. Because they're righteous, notwithstanding the fact that the foreign God is ruling everyone else. So for someone who's righteous to desire Messiah, it's an act of sacrifice. They're forfeiting their own personal accomplishments and and, and potential for the sake of God, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of others. So for someone who's righteous, they're actually personally better off without Messiah. And thus to await Messiah for someone who's righteous, that's difficult. And of course, for the wicked, they're not interested in Messiah at all. It's kind of a terrifying thought. We've been talking about Messiah for so long. But do we actually want it? Messiah is a change in the paradigm of the world. It's going to be a revelation of God. And the things that we prioritize, or the things that are commonly prioritized in this world, won't be important. And the things that are de-emphasized and not prioritized in this world, typically, those will be amplified. Everything that relates to the soul will become important. Everything that relates to the body will decrease in importance. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we actually want Messiah? If someone has you know, a comfortable life and they like it, and they like the football on Sundays and watching Netflix and their comfortable car and comfortable home. Not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but if that becomes your identity, it's very hard to, to switch and say, oh, the matters of the soul, that is primary. And the things that are ultimately 
meaningless, that do nothing for your soul, if we get connected to them, it's very hard to reject them and to embrace a different set of priorities. So we're talking about anticipating Messiah and awaiting Messiah and preparing for Messiah. But it's possible that this demands a lot of work on our part. And, you know, we've been in exile for a very long time. More than 1950 years since the second temple was destroyed. And the Jews were sent into exile. So there's a risk of Messiah being very distant from our mind. I remember hearing a terrible joke. It was a terrible joke. There was a town, a shtetl. And they had a local imbecile. And they wanted to find some employment to keep this local imbecile out of trouble. So I said to them, listen, we want you to go on the rooftops and, and be our scout awaiting Messiah. Just keep an eye, stand the horizon just to see when Messiah is coming and announce to us before he comes. So he goes onto the rooftop and, and he's awaiting Messiah. And a couple of days later, they, they come up there to visit him and they say, well, how do you like your new job, your new responsibility? It's such an important job. So he said, well, it's kind of boring. It's kind of monotonous. But at least there's job security. At least there's job security. This job's not going to go obsolete anytime soon. That was a joke. It's funny, but it's very harmful because it kind of smacks of heresy. We believe the Messiah can come today. And we know we're towards the end of this journey. We know that. And we see how many, many of the prophecies that talk about the era of Messiah, they seem to be coming true. But this attitude that there's lots of job security and that this world, the way it's been ongoing, it's just going to perpetuate indefinitely, that attitude prevails. And that's that's a real danger that we need to overcome if we want to prepare for Messiah. And again, part of this principle, the Ramam is telling us to be part of the Jewish religion, the, the framework of the Jewish religion, are 13 principles. And part of principle number 12 is to anticipate for Messiah. And that means that we have to prepare. We have to be ready. Messiah can come today and there's no warning. And as we shall see, if someone is unprepared, the consequences are catastrophic. A couple days ago, I read a short work written by the Chavetz Chaim called Tzipisali Yeshua, which means, which is the words of the Talmud. The Talmud says that there are six questions that are asked by the heavenly tribunal. The question that relates to the Messiah is called Tzipisali. Did you await Messiah? And it's a short little book about awaiting, anticipating, and preparing for Messiah. And of course, the Chavetz Chaim passed away in 1933. And he stresses in the book that Messiah is imminent and the prophecies are being fulfilled. And everyone must consider the implications of that. Now, the Chavetz Chaim passed away again in 1933, 
So this is before a lot of seismic changes transpired to the nation and to the world. And many of those changes, we can make a very good argument, are further fulfillments of the prophecies of Messiah, further portent to Messiah. So if the Chavetz Chaim is telling us a hundred years ago that the prophecies are in place and Messiah is imminent and we have to be ready, all the more so today. And there's a scary point here. If someone is not ready for Messiah, and Messiah comes, they can potentially miss the boat, miss the train, miss their flight. Messiah is not going to stick around, our Savior's tell us, for the people who are lagging behind. Only those who are ready for Messiah will be able to partake in it. There's an iconic essay that compares awaiting a taxi versus awaiting a train. A taxi, you could stay in your house, you know, you don't have to put your car, your coat on, wait for the taxi to come to beep, and then you go downstairs and you get into the taxi. Whereas if there's a train, you got to stand right on the edge of the platform because the train's not waiting for anyone. It opens the door. If you're ready, you jump in. Otherwise, you miss it. Messiah is like a train. We have to be ready. We have to prepare. And again, if you don't prepare, it's catastrophic. I had a thought on this subject. The verse uses a very unique word to describe the suddenness of the arrival of Messiah. The word that it uses is pitom, which means suddenly, suddenly Messiah will happen. And I noticed that that word pitom, meaning suddenly, it appears in the Torah in a very unusual context. In chapter 12 of the book of Numbers, this is when Miriam speaks Lashon Hara slanderously against Moshe. And she gets Tsaras, she gets this stin malady of someone who speaks Lashon Hara. But the verse tells us, chapter 12, verse 4, that God appeared Pitom, suddenly, to Moshe, to Aaron, and to Miriam, and spoke to all three of them in prophecy. And they went out. That's what the verse says. Now Rashi explains that the nature of the slander that Miriam conducted against her brother was that Miriam discovered that Moshe had separated from his wife because he was a prophet. A prophet has to be ready to talk to God. And if a prophet is engaging in in ordinary standard marital relations, they're impure and they're not capable of prophecy. And Miriam says, wait a minute, we're also prophets. Aaron's a prophet. I'm a prophetess. So why only Moshe? Why is Moshe separating from his spouse and we're not? 
And the slander here is that she didn't realize that Moshe is a different level prophet than she was. And God appeared to them suddenly. And they weren't prepared. And Rashi tells us that they were impure. And they freaked out because they were not in a state of readiness for prophecy. And they were rushing to try to find some water to wash their hands to be able to make themselves in a uh, proper state for prophecy. And that was a way of God showing them that Moshe is different. Because Moshe, God appears to him without warning, suddenly. And therefore, he has to always be ready for that. And therefore, he was justified in the fact that he's separated from his wife. But to me, I find it instructive and illuminating the fact that the, the, the prophet uses the exact same word to describe the suddenness of Messiah. And here we read in the Torah that this suddenness of the prophecy of, of, of Aaron and Miriam, it caused them a great crisis because they weren't ready for it. And they weren't in a state of purity. And that was a, a, a big conflict between the sudden arrival of the prophecy and their lack of preparation. So perhaps the fact that the prophet uses this same word, it's, it's a warning for us to make sure that we are ready for the sudden arrival of Messiah. Now, when I shared this idea with someone, they pointed out that actually there are two places in the Torah when this word appears. It only appears two places in the whole Torah. It appears in other places in the, in the prophets. The other place where it appears in the Torah is also from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. It's talking about the Nazir. A Nazir who is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow to be a Nazir, which means to not come into contact with the dead, not to eat any grape derivatives, eat or drink, not, not to cut their hair for a specific amount of time. And the verse says, what happens if suddenly this Nazir encounters a cadaver and they become impure? So they have to go through a process to purify themselves and then they have to start from scratch. And all their work is thrown out and they go back to square one. This is another place where the word pitom, suddenly, someone suddenly becomes impure. So I told them, I said, well, this is the same idea. If someone is not ready for Messiah and it pounces upon them suddenly, they have to go back to square one. All their work doesn't help them. They miss the train. Being unprepared for Messiah is catastrophic. So we need to prepare. What precisely must we do? How exactly do we get ready for Messiah? So the first thing, of course, is repentance. Repentance is always associated with redemption, with Messiah. The verse tells us, Isaiah, we mentioned this in the past, the Redeemer will come to Zion, when those sinners return, repent amongst Jacob. And the Talmud tells us, in the merit of repentance, that's when Messiah comes. And we've mentioned this in the past. 
The sources indicate that Messiah is ready to go. It's, it's waiting in the chambers. It's in the bullpen. Everything's in place. All we need to do is repent. Isaiah 56, Krova Yeshua Silavo. My salvation is close. It's already. All we need to do is toggle that switch. It's just waiting for our repentance. When the sage met Messiah in the outskirts of Rome, and he said to him, when are you coming? He said, Hayom, today. But he didn't finish his sentence. Hayom, im bekolo tushmo, today, if we repent. There are many, many sources to this effect. The Messiah is ready to come. All we need to do is repent. And we spoke about this in the past, how the Talmud tells us that if the entire Jewish nation observes two Shabbases in succession, Messiah will come. There is a Midrash that says even one Shabbos. And my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, it's shocking that we don't even try this once, just as an experiment. The whole nation should just get together and say, okay, uh, even if you don't believe, let, let's just try it out once. Just, 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 just to disprove it. So repentance is always associated with Messiah. And if we want to contribute toward the arrival of Messiah, and we want to make sure that we're ready, we should make ourselves as compatible as possible with the world of Messiah. The way you prepare for Messiah is to think about, okay, what do we know about the times of Messiah? And how do I make sure that I am in line, that I am compatible, that I'm compliant? How do I make sure that I can facilitate a a transition to that world? Well, prepare yourself, repent. And that, of course, ushers in Messiah, that expedites Messiah, but it also makes you more fitting, uh, a better candidate for Messiah, for that world. What does it mean to miss the train? What does it mean when someone's not ready? It means that they're not a candidate for Messiah. They're not a candidate for that world because they're too incompatible with it. The way you prepare for Messiah is to get yourself as much as possible in the frame of mind of that world. And and therefore, when you come, when that world arrives, you can ease into that world. The change is not too stark. The world of God being one and his name being one, the world where the Yetzirah gets eliminated, all evil gets eliminated. If someone begins that process and tries to eliminate the evil from within themselves ahead of time, then when Messiah comes, it's a much more natural progression. But if someone doesn't do any work to try to install God as one within themselves and to eliminate the evil inclination, the foreign God from within themselves, when Messiah comes, they will perish. Because they cannot transition to a world where God is one, where the evil inclination is eliminated, because they are too enmeshed and interdependent and dependent upon that 
prevailing world. If someone has an addiction, just as an example, and you suddenly withdraw that addiction, you withhold from them that dependency, they could die. Imagine the Yetzirah gets suddenly removed. Someone whose life is so completely intertwined and entangled with the Yetzirah, someone like that will make it. If you spend your time now to try to disentangle yourself from the Yetzirah and try to install God as one within within yourself and become more righteous and, and focus and emphasize the soul over the body and try to avoid the snares and the pitfalls of the Eight Sahara and recognize the primacy of Torah and try to make yourself as compatible now with the world of Messiah, then the shock of Messiah is not too traumatic. You can potentially get onto that train. It's very easy for us to say, we want Messiah, isn't that nice? We can end our speeches and say, may Messiah come speedily in our days. But the truth is, it's an awesome, fear-inducing idea. Are we ready for that world? Someone could be summoned for that world suddenly, and they're not ready. Their hands weren't washed, they weren't prepared. So there's an imperative to prepare for Messiah. Make yourself as much of a righteous person before Messiah, before it's too late. Load up on Torah and mitzvos. After Messiah comes, it's a different world. It's days bereft of desire. It's days without the Yitzhara, and those who stockpiled ahead of time, they have the great merits of those deeds. We need to prepare. Now, the aforementioned small book authored by the Chafetz Chaim, he says something very interesting. How do you prepare for Messiah? He says, one of the ways to prepare on a very practical level is to study the laws of the temple and of sacrifices. What's going to be Messiah comes? Tomorrow the temple's built. You have to do the, the morning sacrifice, the afternoon sacrifice. People have to bring their sin offerings, their thanksgiving offerings. Most people are completely ignorant about these laws. And even at the times of the temple, the Talmud tells us that the average Kohen was ignorant, or at least to some degree ignorant, rel- relatively ignorant. And the sages would be there to instruct them. What's going to be Messiah comes? And everyone's going to rush to the priest, help us with what we need to bring a sacrifice. We need to follow all the protocols and all the procedures and all the laws. And no one's going to know the laws. So one of the practical ideas that he tells us is you have to study the laws. Be ready for it. And he reminds us again, Messiah can come today. And there's not going to be the luxury of saying, "Uh, let's wait three months so we can all take an introductory course on sacrifices and and temple procedures. And yes, the Talmud does tell us that Elijah will come and Elijah will help us answer a lot of questions that we may have. The Talmud very, very often tells us when there's a question that the sages don't know the answer, 
They say, okay, we'll wait for Elijah, the prophet, to come and he'll give us the answer. But Elijah will not help us with the basics. He's only going to answer the unanswerable questions. If we have self-induced ignorance, that's not Elijah's job to remedy. So this is a very interesting way to prepare for Messiah, to study the laws of the temple and all the protocols and all the procedures and all the sacrifices and all the everything that has to happen in the temple. That's a very practical way to prepare for Messiah. On again, another general way to prepare for Messiah and to make sure that we're capable of transitioning into the world of Messiah is to do whatever we can today to be a contributor to the arrival of Messiah and not a detractor. It's helpful for us to know what are the things that expedite Messiah and try to make sure that we're doing whatever we can to contribute towards Messiah and to find out what things hinder Messiah and to avoid them, to avoid detracting from Messiah. The Talmud tells us that the reason why the temple was destroyed was due to baseless hatred. There was baseless hatred amongst the nation, and that's why the temple was destroyed. Of course, we can infer from this, if this is why the temple was destroyed, then the way to undo it, the way to rectify it, is by ending baseless hatred, and instead infusing love. Loving your fellow as instructed by the Torah. If a person says, I'm going to do whatever I can to love my fellow as myself, that is an act of bringing Messiah and of making a person compatible with Messiah. We talked earlier about the many different prayers that we say to try to bring about Messiah. Ramban has an essay, chapter 12, verse 42 in the book of Exodus. He has an essay about how the Exodus happened early due to the prayer of the nation. He cites three verses in Exodus 2.23 and 3.9 and it's referenced post facto in, in Devarim 26.7. The verses tell us that the nation, when they were in Egypt, they cried out to God and they prayed to God to help them get out of their plight. The nation was not slated to be redeemed at that juncture. But their prayer expedited the Messiah. We have so many prayers that we say every day, dozens of daily prayers about Messiah If we pray for Messiah, we, of course, can expedite Messiah and we can be a contributor to Messiah. If Messiah is going to come due to repentance, anyone who helps contribute towards either their own individual repentance but the repentance of others, to spread Torah to others, you are partnering with Messiah. Anyone who helps disseminate and proliferate Torah and knowledge of God in the world. They are partners. They are contributors with Messiah. Messiah is imminent, but we must prepare 
And we have to get in the frame of mind of this. And again, it's hard and it's distant from us. Last week, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's visiting from Israel. We used to be neighbors when we lived in Jerusalem. And he tells me, he's like, what are these people thinking? Do you have these people in the United States and Canada? And they're building luxurious homes and they're really settling down in the diaspora. Don't they know the Messiah's around the corner? What are they thinking? The truth is, for most, I would say confidently, Messiah is such a distant idea. But if it's distant, you may miss the train. Messiah has to be center of mind. And it's not a coincidence that it takes up such a large share of the prayers. The aforementioned Chavetz Chaim, he used to always carry with him a, a special suitcase with his most necessary items to be ready to ascend to the land of Israel at a moment's notice. Messiah comes, I'm ready. I always say that Jews always should have a valid passport, probably for more than one reason. But certainly, it should be it should be front and center of our mind. The, the Chavetz Chaim used to also have a special set of garments that he would don to greet Messiah. A few months ago, I got a phone call from a very special woman back in New York. And she did something very interesting. She found all the blessings that are pertinent to the arrival of Messiah. What do you do when Messiah comes? What what blessings do you say? So she found all the sources that talk about all the blessings that you are supposed to say when Messiah comes. And she produced these nice cards. And she sent me a whole bunch of them. And I said, we're talking about Messiah in the, in the, in the podcast, in the classes. And I'm going to announce in the podcast, whoever wants one of these cards to have it nice and handy, send me an email, rabbiwobajima.com. I'm going to send it to you for free. I'm going to mail it to you. So if you'd like, send me an email. I still have a whole bunch of them. But this, to me, was a very easy way to prepare. You have a card. You keep it with you. And you know, when Messiah comes, I know what I know what to do. Maybe we're not the experts. We're not the great scholars. We're not going to be the people that the priests come to say, okay, how do I follow the exact protocols of this sacrifice, of that sacrifice? But it's a beautiful way to get ready for Messiah. When Messiah comes... There's going to be the restoration of the Sanhedrin. We did not speak about this yet. It's one of the subjects we still have to talk about. Part of the changes of Messiah is the restoration of the Sanhedrin. The great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, he passed away, of course, in 1985 or 86. And he was someone who knew all of Torah. Just complete, total mastery of Torah. And he was once undergoing a surgery. And he inquired about the details of the surgery because one of the requirements to be on the Sanhedrin is to have physical health. And he wanted to make sure that this surgery would not invalidate him from joining the Sanhedrin in the event that was rebuilt right away 
and they are looking for applicants for for the Sanhedrin, he wanted to make sure that this surgery would not invalidate him. And again, for us, we have much, much bigger hurdles to overcome before we are candidates for the Sanhedrin. It's not really pertinent to us, at least not to me. To you, maybe. Not not to me. You know, the, the first prerequisite to join the Sanhedrin is not physical health. It's complete Torah mastery. But I, I, this shows that even the great sages who are spending time studying Torah all the time, Messiah is never too far from their mind. We just recently marked Tishabav, the ninth day of Av, which is the day that the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was destroyed and all sorts of calamities befell our people on this day. And it's a fast day. We fast. We don't eat. We don't drink. And we mourn the temple's destruction. When Messiah comes, our sages tell us, that day will be transformed from a day of mourning into a day of celebration. And we will no longer mourn and fast and bewail on this day. Now on Tisha B'Av, my brother-in-law, so, so my wife's brother, in Los Angeles, became a father to his first son, first child. On Tishbaf. Now, the, uh, there are some sources that say the Messiah will be born in Tishbaf. So someone said, well, maybe this child will be Messiah. So he can't be Messiah. Because this family is a family of Levites. Messiah has to be from the tribe of Judah. They're not candidates. <laughs> They're not candidates. But someone said, Someone predicted that when this boy becomes Bar Mitzvah, on the day of their Bar Mitzvah, there will be a festive celebration. Because already in 13 years from now, Messiah will be here and Tishbev will not be a day of mourning. Well, again, we're not prophets and so we don't make predictions. But it's happening. Messiah is around the corner. The train is coming into the station. My grandmother used to say, Messiah is walking amongst us. If someone told you 200 years ago that there's going to be millions and millions and millions of Jews living in the land of Israel, you wouldn't believe them. That's for the times of Messiah. You wouldn't believe them. If you just took your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents from the 1500s and dropped them into our world and dropped them into Jerusalem, they wouldn't believe their eyes. They'll say, where's the temple? Show me directions to the temple. And of course, you know, when you are going through history, you don't really appreciate it. I know that my grandfather, of blessed memory, told my father he should live me well and he will witness Messiah. And again, we're not prophets and we don't know anything. But a lot of very reputable sources tell us that Messiah is imminent. And we could hear faintly his footsteps. And the prophecies are assembling. 
The ducks are getting in line. And we have to prepare. And we have to be ready. And that, of course, is part of this principle. But if we're not ready, we potentially could be condemned to suffer the consequences. Yes, we spent a lot of time talking about Messiah, the the theory of it and the objective of it and how to identify Messiah and what are the characteristics of Messiah, etc. We have to know that it is imperative for us to prepare. If you want some of those cards, send me an email, rabbiwalbajima.com. And if you have any questions or comments or feedback, I cherish your feedback, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.